Good morning. So good to see each and every one of you. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and so good to uh, to see you all. And to see a few uh, guests, welcome a new face. I've had a chance to say hello to a couple of you, but would love a chance to meet uh, the rest of you if I haven't had an opportunity to do so. As Pastor Kyle uh, welcomed us, today is Palm Sunday. And so I want to uh, begin our time before we get to the text in the Sermon on the Mount where we have been studying. I want to just uh, begin by reading the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem for Matthew chapter 21. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6 for the most of our time this morning, but I want to read this just to paint the picture of all that was happening in Jesus' life in the moment at the first day of Holy Week. This is the beginning of Holy Week, the first day of the Holy Week, and Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied And with a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The crowds knew a little bit about Jesus. They weren't clear exactly who he was, that he was God himself, the Messiah. But they were shouting Hosanna and praising him. And thus began this week, which led to Friday, where Jesus would lay down his life. And ultimately, as we gather again next Sunday, where he will take up his life again and be resurrected. Palm Sunday, though, today was the coronation ceremony, in a sense, of Jesus. Jesus triumphantly entering into the holy city on the back of a donkey. By the way, the donkey was a symbol of peace. You knew that if a king entered in on a horse, he was coming for war. If he entered in on the back of a donkey, he was coming in peace. And so he came into Jerusalem as a symbol of peace, the king arriving in peace. And the people were ready to receive a king, shouting, Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save now. And so they were shouting and asking for salvation, save us, they were saying to Jesus. Of course, they were looking for a salvation that would come in an earthly sense, a temporal sense. And Jesus knew that he was marching towards the cross. The people wanted a king, but they really wanted a king after their own hearts. They didn't want the eternal king, the king of the world. And because they wanted an earthly king, they would have been satisfied with that earthly king that would just have rid them of the problems of their day. Jesus was the king that they needed, but he was not the king that they wanted. And so he came in, and they, again, they saw him as a prophet. As we continue this study from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus' first teaching, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, 
we have been looking at and we're reminded of who Jesus is, the reality of who he is. He is teaching us that we can only have one true king over our lives. It's not possible for us to have multiple kings or to worship two things. As Clint read for us from Matthew chapter 6, and it closes Jesus, of course, speaking and using the illustration of money to demonstrate this. But he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other. So Jesus, if you remember, if you were with us last week, he began this teaching um, on treasure and on the things of the world and how, where we are to place our treasure. If you missed that, you can go back. You can catch up on a podcast. Um, anywhere you find a podcast, just look up City Church Melissa and you can find that text. But in verse 21, as he closed this, or as we closed last week, sort of paused this, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. After Jesus has talked to them about the heart and the fact that we have to place our treasure in one place or the other, we either place our treasure in heaven, in the eternal kingdom of God, or we place our treasure here on earth and on earthly gains and in those types of things. As we describe Jesus in a sense sort of being a wise financial advisor, he just says to those people that he loves, that are his disciples, that he's trying to give the greatest truth to and encouragement, put your investment, invest in the eternal things, not in things that can be turned to dust. And he tells them, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he gives them this wisdom, again, out of love, saying, you want your heart to rest in that kingdom of God, in the eternal kingdom. Put your treasure there. And Jesus' promise is, if you put your treasure there, your heart will follow. If you're struggling to follow Jesus, if you're struggling to do that, you start investing in the eternal kingdom of God, in the people of the kingdom of God, you will find that your heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then in verse 22, he, he turns from the focus of the heart to the eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. And it seems as if, as we're reading this in a full context, that Jesus has changed the subject or he's made kind of a hard left turn. Sometimes it's hard for us as we're tracking with Jesus to follow exactly where he's going, but he is not taking a total shift. He is essentially addressing The second part of the body, using the physical body as an illustration or a picture for us as to what guides our lives, what is the thing that directs us. Jesus is addressing now, he went from the heart to the eye. And if we think about this, it makes sense even for us today. What are the two things, if we had to direct and say, what is it that directs our intentions, that sort of forms us and shapes us? And pushes us forward, it's the heart and the eye. Either we love something and we think of that more of in the internal sense, in the heart, and that sort of gets our attention, or it's the eye. We see something and we want that, and we sort of, that directs the body. The two things or the two parts of our physical body that direct us or sort of push us forward or in any sense uh, push us in life, shape and, 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 and form where we go, It's our hearts and our eyes. And so we are directed by one or the other. We might say it this way. We're directed by our hearts, what we believe, or we're directed by our eyes, what we see. Those two things are what sort of inform us and shape us. And Jesus, as he is turning from 
beware or think about where your treasure goes. Your heart's going to follow that. He's now saying in some senses, what you look at, what captures your eye, what you see will also direct you. And Jesus is giving us wisdom for life. Remember that he's speaking here to disciples, people who he has said have been redeemed, have been welcomed in as citizens of his kingdom, of the eternal kingdom of God. And he's saying to them, I want you to live worried about how we relate, our relationship essentially between man and God and not so much about our earthly relationships. And so he gives this wise instruction. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. It's interesting, these two sort of descriptions and, a, in a sense, this contrast. The eye of health that is filled with light and the eye that is bad or unhealthy that is filled with darkness. If your eye is healthy, you can see, is essentially what he says. You can see What's in front of you, you are aware. But again, as he uses this word in some of a symbolic way, one of the things that we can see in Jesus' choice of words is what he uses to describe the eye. He says that he uses the word healthy. If your eye is healthy. Now that word in the original text, in the original language, the Greek, it can have a varied meaning. It can mean good, if your eye is good, if it's healthy. It can also mean simple, and it can also mean generous. And what that means is, or how Jesus is using this word, he's obviously using it to describe the health of the eye. There's a spiritual health there. But he's showing us that as, we, that as our eye sees, or as it is simply generous, as it just trusts, again, keeping in mind that Jesus is using the illustration of financial investment. He's using the illustration of money here. If the eye trusts in who I am, trusts in God, and is therefore generous as a result of that, there is a health there. There is good. Simply generous, you could think of that. What would that mean? It would mean that you would give with no expectation of return. This idea of the eye being healthy is that it sees the world as Jesus would see it, in the way that he views it. Of course, then he contrasts it the other side of the eye, the eye that isn't full of light is the eye. If the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Again, the language, the original language that he uses there, bad, that word could simply mean sick. It could also mean evil or jealous. So Jesus uses two words that intentionally, in our English language, we have a hard time sort of locking it down. But intentionally, Jesus uses these words that have some crossover meaning. Or kind of could be pointing to two different things. But they are all, in a sense, the same thing. Jesus is showing that the eye that is jealous, what is the problem? Where is the root of jealousy? The root of jealousy is in this idea, once again, that somebody has something that I have that I want. Somebody has achieved something that I want. So Jesus here, he's not just speaking of the physical eye, of course, but he's speaking of the direction which it leads you. Our eyes are what lead us to jealousy. Our eyes are what lead us to generosity. We see a need and we meet that need with generosity. We see someone who needs help or someone who needs care, someone who needs prayer. We go and we love, and that is the effect of the light of Christ shining in us. But the eye that is dark doesn't see those things. All it sees is itself. 
All it can see, all it can worry about is what's happening in its world, our world. And so we become more concerned with ourselves and less concerned with others. So if somebody has something that we want, we can become jealous. We can say, no, I want that. And we can hate that person for achieving, for having, for anything that is not is something that we desire for ourselves. Our eyes can lead us to generosity. Our eyes can lead us to doing good towards others. Our eyes can also equally lead us to jealous, envy, and even hatred of another person. This is the concern that Jesus has for us. And this is the warning in a sense Jesus is asking us to just sort of evaluate our hearts and our eyes. Evaluate our lives. Look at how we interact. But here's the beautiful thing for those of us who are Christians. Jesus has redeemed our eyes. Our eyes were once dark and not full of light, and all we could see was what we wanted for ourselves. All we could see is how to get what we desired. We didn't have the possibility to see and have concern, legitimate and true concern for other people. See, Jesus taught us, as we read last week, as we studied last week, that where your treasure is, your heart will be followed. And he reminded us to set our hearts in the eternal kingdom of God because that's where our hearts will find their true home. But as we examine ourselves And he calls us to caution and be careful where we set our eyes. We have to also remember that our eyes, even though our hearts are set on God, our hearts are his, our hearts have been made alive by Christ, that our eyes can lead us into temptation and can lead us away from those things. If we put our faith in Christ, we've been redeemed and our eyes have been lightened. The eyes have been made new. And so we can see our neighbor now and we can seek for their good. As one author said it, when we look at other people with redeemed eyes and the eyes of Christ, we can seek their good, not their goods. We aren't jealous anymore. We aren't people of envy. We aren't trying to tear other people down so that we can get our own. And the ability to do this is because Jesus has made it so. Jesus has redeemed us and made us new and given us a new picture of the world. And so as Jesus is teaching to his disciples... He's reminding them, your heart has been made new. Put your treasure so that your heart will follow and set your eyes on his kingdom, on the eternal kingdom of God. You know what happens when we forget this? We begin to set our eyes on the things of this world. And Jesus in love is coming to us and saying, don't do that. It's going to take you away. That is harmful to your soul. This is not Jesus telling you, don't do this and do that. I know if you've been in church for long enough like I have growing up in the church, you remember a time and you might have had this perspective at one point or another in your life that all Jesus cares about is telling you to not do these things and to do these things. It's just a list of rules that the Christian faith is about. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, let me remind you of what, you have, what I have done in your life. Let me remind you of the kingdom that I have transferred you into. As you have put your faith in me, you have become a citizen of the kingdom of God. But guess what? We still operate. You want to know why we struggle in this life and in this world? Because our flesh is still broken. It's not fully holy yet. There's a point in time we're waiting on Jesus to finish his work in us. 
But the reason we struggle so often is because we don't heed Jesus' warning here. We allow our eyes to wander. And Jesus is just giving us a caution. In love, he is saying, remember what I have done in your life and set your eyes on me. Set your eyes on the things that I have called you to, on my word, on my people, on my kingdom, and keep your focus there. If you'll just keep your attention there, then the things of this world will become much less important, much, much less plaguing to you. But that's the challenge that we live in. We live daily in a world that competes for our attention. You hear it reference of, we talk about sometimes, one of our elders, Frank, he used the illustration, shiny things. Talks about all the shiny things of this world. And how many shiny things are there that can garner our attention? I love to fish. You know that. Some of you, I've talked about that often, my love for fishing and what, it, what, what causes the fish to get caught? The shiny thing, that little swivel spinning in the water, that little fly dropping that just looks a little bit tasty. We're no different. Our eyes, where our eyes go, our hearts, and sometimes our lives can be led astray by that. And so Jesus is giving us a caution here. Be careful with your eyes. If your eye is healthy, you'll be full of light. If your eye is focused on me, my kingdom, you will be full of light. But the dark eye, the dark eye that can't see, the the eye that is sick is the one that only can see himself, herself, and the things of this world. And this is how Jesus connects. Again, as Jesus went from treasure to I, and then in verse 24, he turns to no one can serve two masters. Again, we're thinking, Jesus, where are you going here? You were in treasure, then you turned to eyeballs. Now you're back to two masters. But this is how this all fits together. Jesus is teaching us and showing us that we have to be careful where our eyes go because he knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. That we can't serve two things at once. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Notice that Jesus uses two phrases here to talk about this sort of competition between two masters. You will either love or you will hate. You will be devoted or you will despise. And he uses two different words. And why would Jesus, why would he say it twice? One is when Jesus says things, he means them. And sometimes he needs to give us a little bit of an emphasis to gain our attention. You think you can serve two masters? Let me tell you, you can't. You'll either love or you'll hate the other one, or you'll despise or be devoted to the other one. And those two things work together. Think about what love does. Love leads to devotion. My devotion to my wife is a result of my love, my committed love to her. And as I love her, devotion shows up. You can't see my love for her. You can see my devotion to her. It's the tangible evidence of that. Hate. Again, you can't see hate, but when we hate something or someone, we begin to despise them. And you can see that. You can pick up on that. You can even feel that. And so Jesus is telling us you can't serve two masters because you're either going to love one, which is going to lead to being completely devoted to that one, or you're going to hate one And that's going to lead to you despising that one. Now, we're all here, every single one of you, I believe, every single one of you that's gathered online with us this morning. We're here because one of a few things. 
either. We want to worship Jesus. We're here to worship Jesus. Or perhaps, if you're not quite ready to worship Jesus, you think at least he might be able to help me out. I'm struggling in life. I need some help. And I've had enough friends that have testified to me and told me that I should come check out Jesus. I should come to church. Or at a minimum, we're curious. Is this Jesus guy even real? Does he have anything to offer me? But no matter where you sit on that scale this morning, you wouldn't be here if there wasn't something about Jesus that had intrigued you, that had caught your heart and your eye, your mind. If you didn't think that it was possible that he might have an answer for you. And so as we think about that, as we're all gathered here, we're at least, again, at a minimum wondering, is this Jesus worthy of my worship? Is he worthy of my love? And Jesus is crying out to you, I believe, pleading with you to believe, yes, he is. For those of us, as we've addressed Christians in the room, we've been transformed. Our hearts have been made alive by Jesus. And so we know he's the only one worthy of our worship. But we're so often tempted away from that. Our eye can lead us astray. And if we're curious and wondering if Jesus is real, if he's worthy of our worship, Jesus says, call out to me and see. But as we think about that, we examine our hearts, and we think about our tension between what we worship. Let me take Jesus just out of the equation for a moment. If you just are curious or you're thinking to yourself, I'm not really sure that's true. I think I can worship two things at once. I think I can love two masters. I won't love this thing and hate the other. Let's just think about worship, or excuse me, work and play. You have work on one hand, your job, all that you're invested in in your life professionally and those types of things. Students in the room, kids in the room, your job right now is school, so you're, you're invested in that and you apply yourself to that task and you do your very best in that, that side of the equation. And then on the other side is play. And you have these two things that seem opposed and in some senses are opposed to one another. Now you can say to yourself, oh, I can worship both. I can do both things. I can worship more than thing, one thing at once. But here's the reality, if we're honest with ourselves. If you worship work, you will never truly rest. You won't ever play. And you know this to be true because when you're on vacation over spring break, you are constantly on your phone. You were constantly checking text messages. If you weren't doing that, you were laying awake at night wondering, what could possibly be going wrong right now? I'm not there. How can I keep things under control? I'm not there to keep it under control. You're not able to really rest because you know that is your taskmaster. And so if you worship work, you're not able to really ever enjoy play. And on the other side of the equation, well, let's say I'm going to worship play. Now, that sounds really appealing to many of us. We love to worship play or vacation. But if you do, you'll work because you have to, but you'll never enjoy it. You'll never find a calling. You won't work as hard as you could. You won't work to achieve your greatest potential because your mind will constantly be on vacation, on play. You can't worship two things. Now, here's the amazing thing about Jesus. This is what he does. If we worship Jesus, 
And our hearts are fully His. And He sits on the throne of our lives. Amazingly, all of the other things in this world take their rightful place. Because when I worship Jesus, I can work. And I can know that He gave me this task of work and I can do my very best, work hard, apply myself, put in every bit of energy that I need to, that I'm called to do, because I'm doing it for His glory alone. I'm not bringing glory to Jesus only when I share Jesus with my cube mate or only when I give some money to the missions organization or give to the church. I can worship Jesus as I just do my very best and honor Him with the task He's given me to do. And when I go on vacation, if I worship Jesus and he sits on the throne of my life, I can rest knowing that he is sovereign over all things. I can trust him. I don't have to worry, oh, if I'm out of control, then there must not be anyone in control. No, we can rest and we can truly enjoy the gift of pause, of a break, of a weekend, of whatever time away you get. You can be fully present in your life. That only happens when Jesus sits at the proper place. This is why Jesus is giving us this instruction. He's not telling you to guard your eye because he despises you. He's not telling you to guard your eye because he wants to hold anything back from you. He's not telling you to put your heart or your treasure in eternity because he's trying to withhold some goodness from this world from you. No, he wants you to enjoy all things. He wants you to enjoy all the gifts. Everything we experience in this life is a gift, is a result of his sovereignty. There's no denying that. He is God. And if he is God, if you believe that God put the sun in the sky... If you trust that, then you have to realize that he is over all things. And if he's over all things, then he is surely worthy of his creation's worship and his creation's heart, his creation's attention. And when he sits in the right place, when he's Lord, everything else falls into its proper perspective. Everything else falls into its proper place. If you're struggling... It's because you're more than likely, you're trying to worship two masters. You're trying to keep one foot over here while having another foot over here. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to show up periodically. I'm going to do it a little bit just to sort of make sure that I keep my Jesus thing going a little bit over here. But then over here, I'm going to enjoy all the things of the world. That's going to be my focus. I'm going to work. I'm going to play. I'm going to achieve. I'm going to do whatever it is that captures our hearts. And Jesus says, that's not good for you, friend. That's not the way I intended Jesus is the only person who is worthy of our lifelong and eternal worship. And all the other things that he gave us, all the other stuff, sitting where they sit according to his sovereign plan are for us to enjoy, not to worship. To enjoy, not to worship. He wants us to play and find rest. He wants us to work and to glorify him. He wants us to do all the things that we do. Jesus sitting in his rightful place, everything else then takes its proper place. Sometimes, periodically, Laurel and I will go out with a group of friends, and as we get to the dinner table, if there's more than a couple couples together, we all kind of do this dance. You've all done it before. Where are we going to sit? Where, how's this going to work? Am I going to be here? Am I going to sit next to Laurel? Do I sit across from Laurel? And only when guys go over here, girls go over here, then we have a great dinner. Everything just <laughs> takes its proper place. When Jesus is king, and he's the only one you worship, the only one worthy of your worship, everything else takes its proper place. 
This is why, as Jesus continues in his sermon, and we'll unpack this the week after Easter, he says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. If everything is sitting in its proper place, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to worry. I am king. I am Lord. I am in authority. If that is your belief, if you trust in that, and you believe that, everything else will fall. Jesus has given us examples of rival gods throughout this chapter 6. Do we worship the praise of other people as the Pharisees did, giving to the poor so that the others could see them, praying out loud so they could be heard? Do we worship money, prosperity, wealth? Is our treasure set in heaven or is it set here on earth? Are our eyes good? Are they focused on Christ? Or are they focused on the things that we would desire, our flesh? This is the example. And so as we close this morning, I just want us to do what Jesus is inviting us to do through this text. To pause and examine our hearts. We don't do this every week, guests, so if you're new with us, just know that this isn't something that our church does every single week, but we're going to spend just a few intentional moments as we close our time together this morning, bowing our hearts, humbling before God, and I just want to invite you to ask that question, Jesus, are you the Lord of my life? Are you truly who I worship? Is my heart set on you? You might pray as we began this morning, Jesus, make my heart believe that. If you're questioning that, if you're doubting that, ask him to make your heart believe it. Perhaps repent. If you find that you've been trying to worship more than one master, turn to Jesus. And here's my promise. Jesus will never shame you. He will never turn you away for humbling your heart before him and saying, Jesus, I have not followed you. I have not given you my whole life. I haven't trusted in you completely. And repent of that and receive his mercy and grace, which I can promise you, I'll just tell you the testimony of my life. When I turn to Jesus and repent of my sins and give those over to him, I am washed with his grace and mercy. And I can tell you it just inspires worship. If you're struggling to worship God alone, to worship Jesus Repent and receive his grace and mercy and watch as your heart turns to him. So would you just bow your heads with me? Just spend some silent time before God.
Lord Jesus, you are king. On that first Palm Sunday, you entered into your holy city. Declared as king, ruler of all. We need help this morning and even day by day to believe that is true. we confess together that too often we allow other things to take your rightful place. We allow our hearts to put our treasure in a place that it doesn't belong. Our eyes lead us away from you. So we just repent of that. We confess that to you, God. Pray that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to keep you today and this week as Lord of our life. You are King. Take that rightful place in our hearts this morning. And I pray for specifically anyone gathered in this room who doesn't know you this morning as King, as Lord. you just show your mercy to them today, Lord. Help us to marvel in your grace. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.